The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, and welcome to Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about marijuana in light of President Biden's recent announcement that he'll be taking steps to decriminalize the drug. We're going to be talking to a cannabis policy expert to break everything down, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Then, for our big interview today, I'll be speaking with Gary Chambers, the civil rights activist now turned politician who's running for a U.S. Senate seat in his home state of Louisiana. This week, our paid subscribers will also get a bonus segment. My conversation with Alex Steffen, the climate futurist and author, about the practicalities of building sustainable infrastructure, as well as how you can ruggedize your life. If you want to access Levertime Premium, you can head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which... If you're looking for other ways to support our work, share our reporting with your friends and family. Leave this podcast a rating and review on your podcast player. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth. And we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. As always, I'm joined by producer Frank. What's up, producer Frank? How much, David? I'm doing all right. Uh, only one of us can say that at the moment. I know that you're feeling a little under the weather, so yes, I've been I've been sick for a couple of days. Uh, but there's been some good news. I think the marijuana stuff is is definitely uh, some good news. It's not perfect news as we're going to be discussing, but that was some big news this week. I think. Oh, definitely. I mean, I know Biden drew some criticism from you know some folks, especially those on the right, saying that this is just you know a. a a pre-midterm tactic to garner support. But, you know, whether it is or not, this is definitely a good thing, objectively. It really shows that the politics of the whole situation are changing. But again, as you suggest, it's a, it's a kind of a complex situation, which gets to our first story of the day. We're going to be talking about what is actually happening. We're going to be talking about marijuana. What are y'all doing in here? We're smoking reefer. And you don't want no part of this shit. You know what? I don't want no hangover. I can't get no hangover. It doesn't give you a hangover. I'll get addicted to it or something? It's not habit-forming. I don't want to overdose on it. You can't OD on it. Sounds kind of expensive. It's the cheapest drug there is. President Biden, a.k.a. Dark Brandon, a.k.a. now Dank Brandon, made headlines last week when he announced that his administration would be taking steps to decriminalize marijuana. First... Biden plans to pardon all federal offenses of simple cannabis possession. Next, he called on state governors to issue pardons in their states for cannabis possession. Finally, Biden asked the Health and Human Services Secretary to look into rescheduling cannabis so it's no longer on Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act, meaning it's no longer as much of a federal crime. Important to note. Cannabis is currently on the same level as heroin. Right, which is totally insane. While these moves are certainly a step in the right direction, Biden has received some criticism from both the right and left. 
First, on the right, you had ghouls like Asa Hutchinson, the Republican governor of Arkansas, by the way, former head of the DEA, an actual narc, who said in a statement that Biden, quote, has waved the flag of surrender in the fight to save lives from drug abuse and has adopted all the talking points of the drug legalizers. It should be noted that in the United States, roughly 95,000 people die every year from alcohol-related deaths, and roughly 80,000 people died from opioid overdoses just in 2021. Meanwhile, I couldn't nail down a statistic on cannabis-related deaths in the United States because it's so difficult to quantify, uh, certainly not at the level of those other drugs that I just mentioned, which are legal. Hutchinson, as I said, was the administrator of the DEA. So keep that in mind when you hear criticism. Also keep in mind that the Republican Governors Association gets lots and lots and lots of money from the private prison industry, uh, which says that it has a vested financial interest in making sure that the current drug laws, the current drug enforcement stays the same. So always follow the money. You just wrote up a story about that for The Lever, right? Yes, exactly. And and we always follow the money at The Lever. And so th when I saw those Republican governors uh, come out and say that they're not going to listen to Biden asking them to to pardon folks in their states for uh, low-level marijuana offenses, all you did is you punch up the money and say, oh, wow, uh, there's lots and lots of money from the private prison industry uh, flowing into Republican coffers. Now, on the left... You also had drug policy activists criticizing Biden for not going far enough, saying that the pardons should apply to all nonviolent marijuana offenses, not just simple possession, as well as include resentencing, expungement, and removing immigration consequences for non-citizens. Whether you think this announcement is just a tactic of the Biden administration to garner support before the midterm elections... Or if you think that he hasn't done nearly enough to actually reverse the devastating effects of the war on drugs, of which, by the way, Biden was a major architect of that war, I think it's clear that this is a step, at least a step, in the right direction. To help us break everything down, the good and the bad and the ugly, we'll now be going to the Levers interview with Shalene Title an attorney and longtime drug policy activist and founder of the Parabola Center, a think tank focused on restorative justice in drug policy. Shalene also served as the commissioner of the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission from 2017 to 2020. She's the author of the book Fair and Square, How to Effectively Incorporate Social Equity into Cannabis Laws and Regulations, and also the book Bigger is Not Better, preventing monopolies in the national cannabis market. Just a heads up, the interview is between Shalene and The Lever's managing editor, Joel Warner, who has years of experience reporting on the cannabis industry in Colorado. Shalene, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, can we start with you telling us a bit about yourself? Tell, me, uh, tell us a bit more about your background, what kind of work you're currently doing, what your past week has been like. Sure. Yeah. So I've been working on marijuana legalization for a long time, about 20 years. And I went to law school actually hoping that I would one day get to write legal marijuana laws. That's exactly what happened. I worked on the Colorado campaign in 2012, which is how I met you, I think. 
And then uh, since then, I've been working on trying to make sure that legalization is better. I did a lot of racial and social equity work on legalization, which is how I got tapped to become a regulator in Massachusetts. I spent three years leading the rollout of legal marijuana here. And then when I left my term, I really wanted to focus on getting the corporate greed out of the legalization movement. So I started a new nonprofit think tank called Parabola Center for Law and Policy. And that's what we focus on, marijuana legalization for people, not for corporations. I heard you use the term uh, marijuana in uh, describing your background. And Frank and I were having a discussion around this and around the correct uh, terminology these days. I don't think we need to discuss why terms like weed and pot are a bit behind the times. But if we can, for folks who are not in the know, like producer Frank, uh, can you can you kind of share kind of the differences uh, between using terms like marijuana and cannabis and how should regular people sound most informed when they're kind of discussing these issues? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't really go wrong. I use the terms interchangeably. So I think if people know what you're talking about, that's fine. But if you want to sound informed, cannabis is the scientific name for the plant. Um, generally, over the last 10 years or so, the legal term has been shifting from marijuana to cannabis. And a lot of people feel that um, because marijuana was used 100 years ago intentionally, to bring out the racism in decision makers because it sounded foreign. Um, they want to avoid using those words. But there's also a whole group of people that thinks we, that think we should reclaim the term marijuana, you know, with its Mexican and Spanish origin, uh, or ganja, which is a Sanskrit term where I'm from. So I think any of these terms really make sense as long as people know what you're talking about. Oh, wow. I did not realize, uh, that like so many other terms, these terms have been kind of, this kind of deeper level politicization, which to me is fascinating. Uh, but if it's okay, can we get into uh, Joe Biden's policy announcement from the past week? So uh, as we've been noting in our coverage at The Lever, Joe Biden announced last week that he's taking some steps to begin the process of decriminalizing cannabis. Uh, if it's okay, I want to kind of go through this announcement piece by piece, uh, delve into each of these policy proposals, because I think there is some subtleties involved. Uh, so first off, Biden says that he plans to pardon all federal offenses of simple cannabis possession, uh, which would help remove barriers for those with records to employment, to housing and educational opportunities. Well, at least that's what should happen in theory. But if we could like, like, what does pardoning these federal kind of cannabis possession offenses actually kind of translate to in the real world? Yeah, let's break that down. Um, I think it's a really big, powerful step. And the first thing I just want to point out as someone who works on avoiding the corporate greed is that there is tremendous pressure on Congress and the White House to do things for businesses, to do commercially based reform. And so the fact that the first big action that Biden took was to pardon people, I think in and of itself is a huge victory. But let's talk about, like you said, the concrete impact. It's pretty small. It's pretty small, but it's real. So no one is actually locked up for simple possession at the federal level, which is what the pardons are going to be issued for. So it's about 6,500 people who have federal level charges. And for them, uh, employment, housing, education, all these different types of barriers 
um, will now those barriers will now be removed because they will have a pardon for their record. So it's a small impact, but a real one. So I've been thinking about these uh, these sixty five hundred individuals who've been mentioned. Do we know much about them other than this number? Like, has there been reporting on who these people are, how their lives have led them to this point, and how this really will kind of impact their lives? Or is this one of those kind of kind of general kind of concepts that people haven't really kind of dug into about who these people are that this could actually help? Yeah, it's funny that you mention it because I, uh, you mentioned how has the week been for me? Um, a lot of people have been asking, do you know anybody who would be affected by this who can talk about it? I think both it's a small number of people, so it's hard to get to them. And also they don't necessarily want to speak out about this, right? Because yes. the whole point is that talking about having a conviction is causing problems in their lives, right? So they don't necessarily want to be public about it, which is the whole reason why we need programs like this. Okay, that makes sense. So, I mean, along with this kind of small but concrete step, like most things with President Biden, there were caveats, okay? So one thing was that he specified that this policy would not apply to non-citizens, which feels somewhat punitive. Uh, You know, do you have any thoughts about why Biden in this big cannabis announcement would take the time and effort to be like, well, this only applies to citizens. Yeah, um, I agree with you, Joel. I think it does sound punitive. And my best guess is that this was a political move, right? Obviously, it's a hugely popular move. It was right before an election. And I think there was probably some thought that perhaps there was risk if non-citizens were included or people who sell cannabis were included. And so it was made to be very small. I think that was probably a miscalculated um, political calculation because most people, regardless of party, now agree that A, marijuana should be legalized and B, people should not face serious consequences for having used it. So I hope that in the future, you know, perhaps he will feel a bit more confident based on the reception to this move and will, in fact, include non-citizens as well. I mean, as uh, as we've been talking about here at The Lever, uh, this, of course, is the president who was the main architect of the war on drugs in the 1980s and 1990s. So it's not hugely surprising that he's sticking some of these more kind of punitive measures into this. Uh, as you said, let's hope that this is a step in the right direction. And along those lines, I mean... From your perspective, is there anything else that Biden could do in the way of federal pardons or executive power in terms of uh, expunging some of these records? Like for you, what's the next step Biden should do? Yeah, there's a lot more he could do. I think the most clear non uh, the most clear next step is to make this apply to people who sold cannabis, not just possessed it, because that's going to have a real impact. It's actually going to probably affect people who are locked up as well. And uh, I think if he keeps talking about this, it is going to change um, the stigma and that is going to affect real laws. He could certainly apologize for, as you said, his role in the drug war. He was a lead architect. And I think if he apologized, it would make a difference. Yes. We'll see if he gets around to doing that. So the next part of Biden's announcement was that he called on state governors to issue pardons in their states for cannabis possession, saying, and I quote, uh, no one should be in, in a local jail or state prison for that reason. What are your thoughts on this piece? Do you think it'll just be a party line thing where 
GOP governors are going to say no way and Democratic kind of governors are going to kind of step up on this? Or is, do you think we're going to see more kind of individual kind of reactions depending on the governor and the state? Yeah, I think it will vary by state. But I'm super excited about this part because I happen to be in the ideal state. I'm in Massachusetts and we have a gubernatorial election taking place. And almost immediately after the announcement came out, our um, most likely candidate for governor, our attorney general, Maura Healy, came out and said, yes, she is going to heed the call. She is going to um, make the pardons at the state level. And I fully expect her to do that. And I think what's really cool is that would not have happened otherwise. But because we're in Massachusetts, when Biden made this announcement, it put this pressure on her of like, okay, are you in Massachusetts going to be to the right of Biden? You know, and so, of course, she's not a very pro-legalization politician, but she had to say it because Biden has now changed what the minimum acceptable position is. Awesome. So in some ways, we actually might see some real benefits from Biden kind of moving kind of the goal line here. So in some ways, the timing of this announcement might have been positive because it's going to force some of these kind of Democrats uh, leading up the election to respond to it. So I guess that's a good sign. Is there anything else you think that Biden could do uh, to to either kind of force the governors to make moves or supersede the, uh, the governors to get this done by himself? Or is this part strictly in the purview of state law? So there's only so much that the federal government can do. Well, I think um, it's a little bit of both because legally there's nothing that the federal government can do. It has to be the states that that take the charge on state level expungement um, and governors on pardons. But I think that by saying something, it makes a big difference. I think that um, most people agree about expungement and record clearance, but usually states are hesitant actually because it's a lot of expense and paperwork to go and find all of those records, you know, and destroy them. And so if you have enough political pressure to make the states do it, um, both in red and blue states, and I think the president is certainly capable of creating this pressure, then they will actually invest in um, the actual record clearance process, which means a lot for people who have convictions on their records. And I assume, along with the pressure from the president, activists are going to be stepping up the pressure from from down below as well. So if we're seeing these lawmakers feel kind of face pressure from two directions, say, yes, I know it's more paperwork for you. I know it's aggravation, but these are people's lives. Then we might actually see real movement. Exactly. It's a whole snowball effect for activists because you get political pressure, you get media attention, you get people asking what expungement is. And it's this whole gift that renews Um, the call. And that's exactly what just happened here in the last week with our soon-to-be governor. And then finally, uh, as part of his announcement last week, uh, Biden asked Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra to look into rescheduling cannabis so it's no longer on Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act. Now, to be honest, this once again feels a bit of a caveat, a bit bullshitty, because Biden's asking Becerra to look into this concept, right? to form a committee, to come up with suggestions, et cetera, et cetera. But from your perspective, like what would, what would actually be required to actually either reschedule or deschedule kind of cannabis? And what would be the concrete impact of, of moving kind of cannabis off schedule one? So a 
A Schedule 1 drug, for people who don't know, means that a drug has a high potential for abuse and no therapeutic potential, which, of course, is uh, not true for cannabis. And I think the president is acknowledging that by asking for a review. I think you're right um, that, on the one hand, it could be a bullshitty move and nothing could come from this review. On the other hand, I think it's exactly the right way to start this approach of let's clear records for people who are locked up or facing barriers now and then start this descheduling and rescheduling process, which may have some impact for people. But generally, this is a business economic industry change. It's going to be a complete sea change. So if you live in a state with legal cannabis, after rescheduling or descheduling, it's going to look completely different. And if cannabis is in fact descheduled, that's when you will see the big corporate interests like Amazon, big tobacco, mm. big alcohol, big pharma, all of whom are waiting in the wings for descheduling. And so that is not a process that we want to rush in any form. So I think it's absolutely right to start with the review. I think that HHS and DEA need to be thinking about who the regulators should be at the federal level, looking at what the states have done, what evidence we have. And if that takes some time, that's fine, because we can continue to stop arrests and legalize at the state level in the meantime. It's interesting hearing you say this, because I think there would probably be a naive assumption in members of the public that uh, kind of drug a drug policy reform activist would be like, no, let's get this done tomorrow. Let's just, let's just remove it. But from what you're saying, uh, in this day and age, there are complexities there that actually mean, no, we need to kind of be smart and tactical about how we kind of remove these longstanding federal barriers. Right. And I think a lot of people might um, mistakenly assume that if cannabis is descheduled, that would stop the arrests. But in fact... As we've said, most of the arrest takes place at the state level, and states are the ones who decide whether to criminalize or not. So even if national federal legalization takes place and it's descheduled, states can still choose to criminalize and arrest people. Um, and if we want to make the change, we have to do it at the state level. And so there's no like automatic, wonderful, utopian thing that will happen with descheduling, but there's a lot of disaster <laughs> that could actually come. So yeah, you don't hear that very often, um, unless it's someone who has perhaps been in a regulator role like me, uh, you can see the potential uh, for harm. And so asking for a review did not cause active harm. And I think it's actually the best way to start out. Interesting. So um, I want to kind of sum up our discussion about Biden's announcement. Uh, from your perspective, how good a move is this? Like, were you over the moon? Were you excited but had concerns? Or were you like, this is this is mostly just kind of political speak, but we'll take what we can get? <laughs> I think it's a great political move. I think that it's a small but great concrete impact and it didn't do any harm. So all of those things together, I'm very happy because it is, in fact, easy to do harm when you start messing with federal drug laws. If it's OK, I want to segue a bit to a story we just put out this morning where we noted that in response to uh, Biden calling on governors uh, to look into 
issue pardoning in their states. Um, we had several GOP governors, I mean, they say, no way, we're not going to do this. And not just because of the party line stuff, but of course, these governors, including the governor of Texas, have been some of the biggest recipients of private uh, prison money. Mm -hmm. So I want to, if we can, I want to talk about this concept in terms of the opposition to reforming mm -hmm. kind of cannabis laws. One, what does the opposition look like these days? More importantly, who's funding it and why? Uh, you know, we at this point, 70% of Americans support expunging uh, cannabis related convictions, you know, including majority of independents and Republicans. But as we know, public support doesn't always kind of translate to the laws being changed because they aren't necessarily holding the levers of power. So, yeah. So to you, can we talk about uh, what sort of opposition we're seeing these days to these sort of changes and where the money is coming from? Yeah, um, I think the anti-legalization movement is constantly rebranding. Uh, so the main opposition organization called SAM, Smart, Appro Smart Approaches to Marijuana, just did a full rebrand a couple months ago. Um, they do this all the time because oh, really? people don't understand... Um, People are not against legalization, right? And they're losing people constantly because they were in a state, um, they were anti-legalization, and then they saw dispensaries open, right? They saw people love their products. They saw that nothing went wrong. You know, youth, youth use didn't go up. Everything kind of went smoothly. And so because they're losing people, they're rebranding. So actually, what's very funny about the current anti-legalization messaging is that it sounds really similar to what people like me are saying, which is that we're worried about a big weed, right? We're worried about commercialization. We're worrying about um, essentially this whole economy that exists, both small cannabis businesses and underground operators um, being co-opted and given to big tobacco, they use all of these talking points, but the difference is then they say, therefore, we cannot have legalization at all. Whereas someone like me is actually giving a path to legalization that's better. As for who's funding them, I don't know. Um, I think it's a lot of small funders who they're kind of tricking, you know, people with genuine public health concerns who haven't looked into legalization as much. And then, of course, I think that the private prison industry and big pharma are continuing to oppose legalization as they always have. That's interesting that you also mentioned big pharma, because I think uh, on some members of the staff here at The Lever, when we were talking about uh, looking into the money, there was assumption, oh, should we look into what big alcohol is doing to oppose this and maybe also big tobacco? But I think as we're about to discuss, I think uh, those industries are looking at legalization in a different way than saying we need to stop this. Oh, quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah. So we're not seeing alcohol fight legalization, as people might have assumed. And yeah, actually, let's let's actually get into that, if that's okay. Um, as we noted, uh, we got to know each other when I was covering the cannabis industry here in Colorado. I, I started covering it right when the state became the first state in the country to legalize, uh, where it was really kind of grassroots at first, you know, some of the first dispensaries. It was all kind of fly by night for both better and worse. And I think we've all seen this, the real kind of corporatization of the business. Um, we've seen bigger, bigger players come in. It's starting to look like almost like a typical kind of boring industry. Um, and I think there are some potential kind of risks in that. And I know this focuses on your work these days. So can we, can we talk about 
how corporate interests are working to shape cannabis policies. As you said, uh, companies like Amazon are waiting in the wings for descheduling or rescheduling. Um, how do we know that and what do you think we'll be seeing? Well, we know that because, for example, with Amazon, they endorsed all of the legalization bills so far. And um, they say that it's about their employees and they don't actually have um, plans to sell cannabis. So I will leave it up to your listeners if they want to trust Amazon or not. In terms of big tobacco and alcohol, they are actively funding um front groups, essentially, who work on marijuana legalization. So actually, my uh, counterpart in Colorado, uh, the first Colorado regulator, Andrew Friedman, runs an organization called CPAIR, and it includes Altria, Molson Kurz. Um, it's a big tobacco and big alcohol-funded group that is trying to influence legalization in D.C. And that's why I said so many times earlier, you know, that you could cause harm. I'll give you a quick example. Um, when we talk about descheduling marijuana, we can do it immediately, like what's often referred to as flipping the switch without any plan for what states currently have in place. Or we could do it gradually with protections for craft businesses, with protections for state programs. And what they advocate for is the flip the switch model, which would allow big tobacco and alcohol to start buying up companies and engaging in interstate commerce across state lines, which would very likely put small businesses out of business quickly. So that's the difference, for example, um, in what the big corporate interests are advocating for versus those who are worried about avoiding monopolies. So let me get this straight. The person who was hired here in Colorado as the first marijuana czar to kind of carefully kind of move through these new policies here in the state to create an exemplary kind of regulatory system is now working for these big industries saying, no, we just have to go kind of whole hog forward and come what may. Yes. Amazing. Amazing what, uh, what corporate money can do to people. Okay. So with that background, I mean, where do you see the next legalization battles, either in terms of what states or what issues like, like, where do you see the next big developments? Well, um, there's a short term push to this year actually pass something incremental. And um, it's funny, I think actually Colorado, the Colorado government is somewhat the face of this, um, where they're pushing for a bill called safe banking which would provide a safe harbor for banks that want to work with small cannabis businesses and large cannabis businesses. Um, I think that there are some issues with the idea that banks are the victims here, you know, and they're the first ones who need to be protected by a federal bill. Um, so I've made some suggestions for amendments, but that does look like this year um, is the bill that has the potential to pass. So that's like the immediate issue. But I think in general, you know, now that we have this order from the president to, as a society, start talking about reviewing the schedule, reviewing the status of cannabis, it's really important for people to talk about what the industry should look like. Like you said earlier, do we want it to end up looking like every other industry with two or three giant corporations running it? 
Or if we want it to look differently, then we need to get together as the movement that has legalized cannabis in all of these states and is going to be responsible for doing it federally and make a plan for what it looks like. And that will be ongoing over the next months and probably years. I want to talk about how, you know, making that plan, especially what you think kind of listeners, activists could or should be doing uh, to help at this point. You know, what advice do you give to people say, hey, you know, I'm supportive of, of legalization, of decriminalization, but I'm concerned about kind of with the corporatization. What do you recommend to people that they do at, on an individual basis, either how they vote with their checkbooks or how they should advocate for for smart regulations? I mean, what do you say to people say, well, what what can I do? So the first thing I tell people is you have a lot of power on this issue and you may not realize it because as citizens, we don't necessarily control, you know, how industries are going to roll out. But when it comes to this particular industry, those officials that want the credit of having legalized cannabis, they're listening to people and they're especially listening to young people, consumers, um, so start by understanding your own power and empowering yourself and then educate yourself. And that's what Parabola Center is for. That's our whole mission is to make these policies available so that you can advocate for them. I'll give you a quick example. There's a bill called the SHIP Act, which was introduced by Rep Huffman in California. And it says that upon legalization, immediately small, uh, craft producers of cannabis would be able to ship directly by mail uh, their products to consumers. And this is based on um, what craft wineries and breweries have. Oh, yeah. So that's the exact kind of policies that we need. Um, and then at the state level, there's a lot you can do as well um, based on what's already in place in states. So follow Parabola Center and we will help you use the power that you have. How should... Uh folks follow the Parabola Center. How can folks support the Parabola Center? So we are on Twitter and Instagram at Parabola Center. Um, and we're run by legal professionals as a think tank that don't have um, private clients or private interests. So if you have an idea for what you want to see, like home grow, for example, the right to grow plants in your house, um, we can help draft that for you in your state. Awesome. Um, any final thoughts, Julie? This, this has been fantastic. No, just thank you for having me. And I hope that people don't give up, you know, and see it as inevit inevitable that big corporate interests will take over because they don't have power. That's why they're trying to co-op the movement's power. Um, and we just got this big sign, you know, from the even the White House, the, the drug war architect himself, that they want to repair the harms of the drug war. So let's take that and run with it. Yeah, let's have a hope for that. And hopefully we see more progress. And if so, uh, we'd love to have you back on to discuss it. Thanks, Joe. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with my interview with U.S. Senate candidate Gary Chambers. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our big interview today, I'll be speaking with Gary Chambers, a Democrat running for a U.S. Senate seat in Louisiana. Born in Baton Rouge, Gary is a longtime community organizer and activist who's now found himself on the national political stage. His campaign has already made big waves from its unabashed ad messaging. One depicted Gary smoking weed while calling for the legalization of marijuana. Another, uh, there was a burning Confederate flag uh, while Gary was denouncing Louisiana's racist voting rights history. I spoke with Gary about his background, the state of the race, the friction that he's faced, the tension, the 
conflict that he's faced with the Louisiana Democratic Party establishment and how he hopes to become Louisiana's first black senator. Hey, Gary, how you doing? Thanks for joining us. I'm good. How are you, David? I'm doing okay. Um, I guess to start, for those in our audience who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background? How did you find yourself getting into politics? Now running for a U.S. Senate seat in Louisiana. So I was a small business owner with two of my friends. Uh, we started a company called The Rouge Collection uh, Media Platform here in Baton Rouge, and we would just try to be uh, a hip version of another platform here in the city. Uh, there were things happening around the country. Trayvon Martin happened in Florida, Mike Brown in uh, Missouri. Uh, these things impacted me as a young black man. And so I had a media platform. When Trayvon was killed, I wrote a column. When Mike Brown was killed, I held my first town hall, maybe 20 people showed up. Um, and then there was a brother named Lamar Johnson here in Baton Rouge who was uh, pulled over by the police in Baker. He has a traffic stop. He goes to Parish Prison and they say he hung himself. And this is like three weeks before Sandra Bland. Uh, his family reaches out. I write a column about it. 40,000 people read that column. Um, a few months later, our district attorney here in Baton Rouge was attempting to open a misdemeanor jail to round up people who had simple traffic violations and bench warrants and put them in uh, jail for the weekend to pay their debt. And I just thought if you can't handle the people in parish prison, you can't handle the people in a temporary jail. And I wrote columns about that, showed up in my first city council meeting in uh, I think it was 2015, uh, killed the misdemeanor jail and as a result, just got addicted, started showing up at city council meetings, school board meetings, airport board meetings, parks and recreation, anywhere where people were taking our tax dollars and doing nothing to help people with it. Uh, I showed up and then I met my politicians and I found out that most of them weren't that good. And I thought I could run and do a better job. And that's a good way to get into politics, in my view. That's it. That's uh, my wife is a state legislator here in Colorado. It's basically how she got involved. She started meeting, uh, started doing activism, meeting politicians, and realized, you know what, uh, these people are not special, and sometimes they can be replaced. Um, I guess um, just to give folks the context of Louisiana's election, it's a little bit different in that the Democratic primary is on November 8th, which is National Election Day, then the general election for the Senate seat in Louisiana on December 10th. So knowing that you still have a primary to face, tell us the state of that primary contest. How do you differentiate yourself from your other Democratic primary opponents? Well, one, I differentiate myself by actually having ran for office and served our community in meaningful ways and have a base of support. Uh, I'm the only Democrat running that can say that they have a base of support uh, that's shown up to vote for them before. Uh, we're the lead polling Democrat. We raise more money faster than any other Democrat in the race. Um, John Kennedy, who's our senator, is polling at 51 percent. Uh, he's not overwhelmingly popular the way that people may think he is. Um, and so what we need to do is keep him under 50 in order to create a runoff scenario. We're the campaign that has capacity to mobilize the base of the party. Louisiana's 34 percent black. The Democratic Party here in the state is 70 percent black. Uh, 30 percent of white voters in the state consistently vote for consistently vote for Democrats. Uh, so we believe we are the campaign most energized, most likely to be able to defeat John Kennedy by motivating the base of the party. 
Now, you have made some headlines nationally with some of your ads. Uh, one ad shows you uh, smoking weed. Uh, another ad shows you burning uh, a Confederate flag. I want to play uh, a clip uh, of that latter ad. They said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But here in Louisiana and all over the South, Jim Crow never really left, and the remnants of the Confederacy remain. So I want to ask you just to go deeper on that. What do you mean by the remnants of the Confederacy remain in Louisiana? So Louisiana is the second blackest state in America. We have six congressional districts. We should have two majority minority districts. We only have one. Uh, I ran in that congressional district in 2021. It's 10 parishes. We have parishes, not counties here. Um, And it's extremely gerrymandered. Uh, All of the other districts are like blocks. And this one's kind of like a slither of a snake. Uh, that goes from North Baton Rouge all the way to New Orleans East. Uh, It picks up a huge chunk of black voters in order to disenfranchise us uh, from being able to get federal representation. Um, That's one aspect of it. The same thing is happening in our state legislature. Uh, We have a supermajority Republican legislature in the House, almost the same in the Senate, even though uh, black folks and Democrats make up uh, a huge portion of this state. Uh, We're underrepresented on our Supreme Court here. Uh, And what does that mean? That means when every policy decision is made in this state about resources that are allocated to solve problems, that black people are disadvantaged in that conversation. Um, and taxation without representation is about as un-American as you can be, right? Um, and that's what we have. And it's not just a problem here in, in Louisiana. That's a problem in Mississippi. Uh, Mississippi is the blackest state in America. They're 37, 38% black. They have one congressman, Benny, Benny Thompson. They should have more than one. Um, and in both of our states, there's not been a black person elected statewide. Uh, in Louisiana, there's not been a black person elected statewide since 1873, Um The first black governor in U.S. history was PBS Pinchback, uh, and he ascended to the governorship here in Louisiana as the president of the state Senate. The lieutenant governor dies. He becomes the governor uh, for 30 days. And then there's 100 years before Douglas Wilder becomes the governor of Virginia. There's only been four black governors. Uh, Two of them have been elected. Two of them have uh, risen by ascension. Uh, The other uh, statewide offices, 11 black U.S. senators. I think when we talk about uh, the representation that uh, minorities have had in this country, it's underwhelmingly delivered for the people. I want to talk about the big news nationally because it does relate to your campaign. Um, President Biden last week uh, began, hopefully, the process of uh, legalizing marijuana or at least decriminalizing marijuana. Uh, He asked for, for instance, uh, the uh, HHS, the Health and Human Services Secretary, to begin the process of evaluating whether to deschedule the drug. Um, There were also other parts of this where he said he was asking governors to uh, pardon low-level marijuana offenses. As somebody who's been campaigning on criminal justice reform, campaigning on uh, legalizing marijuana, as I mentioned that ad that you did, what do you make of what the president did? Is it a step forward? Should he do more? What what didn't he do that you'd want him to do? Uh, I think the president made a positive step in the right direction. Uh, of course, I would love to see him do more, uh, but I'm I'm keenly aware of uh, who we're dealing with with President Biden. I think that he is uh, honoring the things that he said as a candidate. And that that is what we as voters desire, right? That someone does the things that they say they're going to do uh, when they when they're actually in office. Uh, 
I am seeking to get to the U.S. Senate to go help make sure that it gets done all the way. Uh, we need to deschedule cannabis. Uh, we need to make sure that we get safe banking in America. Uh, people that are in the cannabis business all over this country can't just put their money in the bank easily. Uh, it's a it's a really uh dangerous process that we have for a lot of people that are in business. And it's an inequitable process for people who are still being incarcerated for it. You look at states like Georgia, North Carolina, uh, South Carolina, where they are on cannabis is archaic. Um, Louisiana is medicinally legal and we just decriminalized. Uh, and I think that we're going to get to the point of recreational cannabis here soon because 70 percent of voters in Louisiana uh, believe that recreational cannabis should be legal. Uh, the real deal is how long is the federal government going to allow people to be incarcerated for this? And if we say that uh, we're serious about wanting this to be something that's resolved, the fastest way for us to do it is to deschedule it at the federal level and then put the pressure on states to do what they need to do to release all those that are incarcerated. David, I've got to say, Kevin Allen is a man who's in Angola Penitentiary right now serving a life sentence for less than a gram of cannabis. He's been there since 2013. Um, we spend $19,000 a year in Louisiana to incarcerate and $11,000 a year to educate. Your great state of Colorado is the fourth ranked education system in the country, and we have the 48th ranked education system in the country. I think that we're getting it wrong and we don't have the investment dollars to get it done uh, to help our children and cannabis could help be a gateway to make sure that we can invest in our children. There was a controversy that came up uh, earlier in your campaign uh, where James Carville, the uh, Democratic strategist, Clinton Democratic strategist, uh, who is from Louisiana, uh, he was on TV. Uh, he had this to say about your campaign. Does Jerry, Gary have any chance? No. And I, I, I think Gary Chambers is an idiot. He's about a, one of these kind of activists, you know, left-wing activists from Baton Rouge. So I, I, I think this touches on something that you've brought up a bigger issue, which is the establishment of the Democratic Party. You've, you've argued that the establishment is, is hostile to you and to other black candidates running statewide uh, because black candidates haven't been elected statewide in Louisiana. What's your response to what Carville said? And, and give us a little bit of context for the larger argument you've been making about the Louisiana Democratic Party. So, one, I, I've got to start by saying that James Carville uh, supported, I think, Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. They lost. He supported uh, the guy who came in second in the Democratic primary in Pennsylvania. John Fetterman, who's more progressive, is the nominee in Pennsylvania. I think if you look at the record of the types of candidates he supported, they're losing. Um, that's number one. Number two, uh, if we were wise as a party, we would get around the policies that galvanize the base of our party rather than trying to get this slim margin of moderates or independents that sway Republican. Right. Uh, Donald Trump, whether we like him or not, taught a valuable lesson in politics. Go to your base and go all in. Right. Uh, and if you do that, you have the best odds at converting people because energy is transferable. Uh, the Democratic Party here has been uh, and I won't say the entirety of the party. I will say the leadership of the party uh, has been uh, problematic for us from the very beginning. They said the chair of the party told me that she didn't think a black man could win. Um, I did everything uh, in our power to build a grassroots strong campaign that built a national platform. We were successful in that. Uh, her candidate is polling under in, in single digits uh, and has been so all year long, no matter how much he's done. 
um, and a great guy, but just not able uh, to beat John Kennedy. We ran a moderate Democrat in uh, the election where Kennedy was elected, right? Um, and that person, 28% of black voters in New Orleans showed up, 26% of black voters in Shreveport showed up, and 32% of black voters in Baton Rouge showed up. Those are the three largest cities in our state. If you can't turn out the black vote in those states, a Democrat can't win. We have a Democrat as our governor. Uh, people believe that he's a Democrat because he's he's, he's a elected because he's moderate. The truth is he's elected because we had crazy people running against him like John Kennedy. Uh, and that excited the base of the party. And we got behind him. I think that if we gave young people and real Democrats somebody to show up for, they'd show up for him. Let's let's talk about the general election opponent, if you win the primary, John Kennedy. Um, John Kennedy, it seems to me, uh, he, he was a Democrat. He, he became a Republican, uh, which has happened many times uh, in, in the South. Um, John Kennedy tries to come off as this sort of folksy, uh, somewhat, I guess, Republican populist uh, uh, kind of candidate. Um, why do you think his numbers appear to be pretty weak in Louisiana, which has been a traditionally Republican state. What do you think the best arguments are, the most compelling arguments to voters about why voters should uh, get rid of him? Uh, one, he's been elected almost as long as I've been alive. He's polling at 51 percent. Um, usually a U.S. senator be over 60 percent if they're popular. Uh, he's not there. Um, Kennedy used to be a pro-life, I mean, a pro-choice Democrat. Let me say that too, right? Now he's all the way pro-life, all of these things. Um, and he switched to being a Republican when Obama ran for president. Um, that's, that's something that has to be uh, pointed out because uh, in 2004, he ran for a U.S. Senate as a Democrat when John Kerry was on the ticket for president. Um, John Kennedy plays whatever role necessary to win an election. Uh, he voted against infrastructure dollars here in Louisiana. Infrastructure dollars aren't red. They aren't blue. They aren't black. They aren't white. They're everybody uses the roads. Uh, and that's six, seven billion dollars of resources, jobs that don't come here. What's insulting about it is you vote against infrastructure dollars when we had just suffered a hurricane, Hurricane Ida, and people uh, in mostly Republican areas of our state, home of Louisiana, were without power for a month. Kennedy votes against infrastructure dollars. What do those infrastructure dollars do? They help us put those power lines underground so that the next time a hurricane comes, which we know we're going to have one, uh, that we don't have to have people without power for a month. This is a guy who just does not care about the people of this state. That's my argument to people when I go out. The other thing is he spends a lot of time on TV making an ass of himself. Uh, he just made a commercial where he said, if you got a problem with the police, call a crackhead. Um, that is not only not solution based, it's insulting. Um, and he consistently votes against things that would benefit the people of this state. The other thing is when you talk about being a pro-police guy and call a crackhead, but you voted to overturn the election uh, of Joe Biden, uh, he's the only senator on the ballot right now that voted to overturn the election. Um, and uh, where was his pro-police attitude uh, to the cops who were being assaulted at the Capitol by Republicans who were storming the Capitol. I think he's uh, a con artist and I think he's uh, a fraud. And I think that if we're in the opportunity to run against him in a head-to-head uh, -head matchup, we're the best suited to expose that consistently. Uh, if we've got the resources to put the the foolishness that John Kennedy does into the ads that we create and put that on TV, he's going home. 
One last question for you about the themes of your own campaign. You're a proud Christian, which is highlighted on your campaign website. How do you see your faith being a strength of your campaign, especially in 2022, as the country seems to be more and more divided and where religion is so often uh, used in politics, unfortunately, uh, to divide rather than to unite? I try to lead with love. Um, That's first and foremost. Everything about my faith teaches me that God is love um, and that if we want people to uh, become believers of what we believe that the way to get them is to love a man. Uh, some people li- believe that you spend time uh, judging people. I got my own sins to talk to God about when I get to heaven. I'm not worried about yours or anybody else's. Uh, and so that's kind of the philosophy I live with. My campaign slogan is a scripture. It's uh, Isaiah 1 and 17. Do good, seek justice, help the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, and the poor. We just keep do good and seek justice at the front of it. But it's a declaration. And every time somebody says it, they're quoting a scripture. Um, for me, that's the the Jesus I serve, the, the Jesus who cared about the poor, who uh, cared about the sick. I, when I go to churches and I talk about Medicare for all, I say Jesus laid hands on the sick. That was Medicare for all. If it was good for Jesus, it's got to be good for us. Uh, and people get it right uh, that at the end of the day, my faith also was a choice um, that I made at some point in my life. Uh, God didn't force me to be a Christian. I made that choice. And I think that in making that choice, I want to give everybody else the liberty to make whatever choices they want. Uh, And that's just the way that I lead. And uh, if I love more people, hopefully at the end of my life, more people believe the things that I believe. That's the uh, goal of discipleship. But in the goal of my elected service, it's to live a life uh, that that shows my faith. Uh, And I live in the South. You know, people at church every Sunday here in Louisiana. Uh, I did five churches yesterday um, and all of those churches were full uh, with people who were uh, excited about being able to get out and vote for us. And so um, I think it's a strength. And I think that showing the way that I believe and carrying my faith the way that I do uh, hopefully gives people some comfort that everybody who's a believer isn't against them. Gary Chambers is a Democrat running for the U.S. Senate in Louisiana. You can find his website, ChambersForLouisiana.com. That's ChambersForLouisiana.com. Or on Twitter at Gary Chambers Jr. Uh, and you can find him there. Gary Chambers, thank you so much for taking time with us. Thanks for running the aggressive campaign you're running. And good luck to you. Thank you so much, David. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Lever Time Premium get to hear our bonus segment, my interview with acclaimed climate futurist Alex Steffen about practical sustainability and how to ruggedize your own life in the era of climate change. In the broadest sense, my understanding of sustainability is that it is the act of leaving more options for future generations. that the most sustainable society is the one that leaves the future the most to work with. And please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. One last favor to ask. If you like this podcast and our reporting, please tell your friends and family about The Lever and the work we're doing here. Forward our emails to them. Encourage them to subscribe. The only way independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Keep rocking the boat.